Yeah, let's read from Isaiah, I beg your pardon, Jeremiah chapter 31. And we're going to look at verse 31, one of the most well-known passages from this book. Jeremiah 31, verse 31 says, The time is coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. It will not be like the covenant I made with their forefathers when I took them by the hand to lead them out of Egypt because they broke my covenant, though I was a husband to them, declares the Lord. This is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after that time, declares the Lord. I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. No longer will a man teach his neighbor or a man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, which is my cue to exit the building. Not quite. No, no longer will a man teach his neighbor or a man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, because they will all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their wickedness and will remember their sins no more. People who read the Bible for a quick, upbeat bit of happy manifestation may find difficulty when they come to the book of Jeremiah. It's a book full of gloom. It ranks alongside the book of Lamentations as one of the unhappiest books of the Bible. And Lamentations was probably written by Jeremiah, so you can get to know him a little bit through those two facts. He's known as the weeping prophet because of the severity of the message he delivered and the emotional toll that that message took upon him personally. Jeremiah spoke during the final decades of the history of the life of the nation of Judah, the southern kingdom of Israel and Judah. And uh, he was alive and speaking during and up to the siege and the fall of Jerusalem in 587 BC under the invading armies of the Babylonian Empire. Jeremiah predicted this fall and the exile of the nation as the consequence of the nation's long-term breaking of its covenant with God. God had set up a covenant with the people during the time of Moses and the Exodus, and that covenant uh, involved the people obeying and receiving blessings or disobeying and receiving curses. There were blessings and curses built into the covenant arrangement. And by the time of Jeremiah, the nation's spiritual decline was severe. They had continually, over many, many centuries, broken the covenant through idolatry, persistent immorality, and injustice. And by the time of Jeremiah, their decline was so severe that judgment had, in fact, become inevitable. At the outset of his calling, Jeremiah was told that he and his message would be strongly opposed. That's an encouraging thing to hear, isn't it? When you're a young man feeling a call to preach, and the Lord says to you, no one's going to listen to you, by the way. Everyone's going to reject what you say. And uh, that was the case when his extended family conspired to murder him. When he was arrested, he was beaten, he was put in stocks, and he was imprisoned in a damp, freezing, and dark water system. He was a prophet who experienced suffering, both physical and also emotional. He, he, it upset him, the things that he had to say and the responses that he met in response to it. He was a prophet also who used physical symbolism. He used both objects and actions to symbolize and express the message he was communicating. On one occasion, this symbolism included him withdrawing from all the normal social functions of society, including weddings and funerals and any social interaction. Uh, and he was also told by Yahweh not to marry and not to have children. So these actions together were symbolic of the future events that would fall upon Jerusalem and Judah, the breakdown of society under the impending judgment of the invasion. So you get the idea, right? He's a happy guy. <laughs> this, 
This is the nature of his ministry. Despite the delivery of this message of judgment that was at the heart of his life and his work, there was still an element of hope in his preaching. And the theme of restoration after judgment began to be sounded. And this theme takes on more and more prominence as the book unfolds. So although there's a lot of darkness and gloom in the book, there's also this message of hope that comes through again and again and with increasing uh, power. And here in uh, chapter 31, we see one of the great examples of this where Jeremiah speaks of a new arrangement, a new covenant, a time of great restoration for Israel that would not only affect Israel, but the entire world. The physical restoration of the Jews from exile, but also a new arrangement for them, a new and a better covenant, which would have an effect on the entire planet. Jeremiah 31 is perhaps the best known of these covenant or new covenant prophecies. And this passage is quoted at length in the New Testament. And the New Testament writers understood it to refer to the events surrounding the death and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ and the new covenant that he instituted through his death and resurrection which happened obviously centuries after the physical restoration. So why am I, um, ch- why am I choosing such a, 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 an upbeat message uh, today? I just sense that the Lord has something particular to say to us today about the nature of this wonderful new covenant that he has brought us into. And I say us, I, I refer to those who believe in Jesus Christ. Everyone who believes in Christ is included in this new covenant. And everyone who has put their trust in Christ is included in the promises made concerning this new covenant. And there's one promise right at the heart of it, and it's written here in verse 34. They will all know me from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. They will all know me from the least of them to the greatest. My sense is that the Lord is speaking to us at the early part of this new year about coming to know him more, about opening the eyes of our heart, about opening our understanding more and entering into our inheritance more. These themes came through, I think, last week as we met together. And I sense it's something that the Lord wants to birth in us in this month of January. And at the heart of this, I think, is this promise here from the prophet Jeremiah, that they will all know me from the least of them to the greatest. The late uh, Dr. John Thompson was an expert in ancient languages in the Middle East. He understood a lot of the ancient languages, including biblical Hebrew and others and he wrote about this verb to know they will all know me and he said here about this verb that it carries its most profound connotation the intimate personal knowledge which arises between two persons who are committed wholly to one another in a relationship that touches mind emotion and will that's what Jeremiah was prophesying he's prophesying everyone who's in Christ he wasn't using the phrase in Christ I'm putting a new testament Uh, meaning to that. Everyone who is in Christ is going to know God in this profound way. They're going to have an intimate, personal knowledge with the Lord Almighty. And it's going to be a relationship where there's going to be uh, an effect on the mind, the emotions, and the will. It's going to be a profound, intimate relationship. And that's the promise of the new covenant, that we can all know God in this way. Hallelujah. And that's what I believe what God wants to impress upon us today, and also give us some practical steps to how we can activate and develop that knowledge of God in that way. Do you ever lose things? Man, I'm bad. I'm really bad. <laughs> I just, I just, most weeks I lose something or I lock myself out of something. It's, and uh, have you ever lost your car keys? Right, okay. So you lose your car keys, right? And uh, you start looking for them. 
So in your pocket and your bags and your jacket and that little pot by the door and by the phone and under the bed and, you know, everywhere. And then you can't find it. And you say, I've looked high and low. I can't find it. The phrase high and low is an expression where you say the two extremes of something as a way of explaining you mean everything in between those two extremes. I've looked high and low. It's a, it's a kind of literary device. And there's a similar device used here in verse 34. They will all know me from the least of them to the greatest. That's a similar type of device. That phrase means they will all know me, everyone, without exception. That's what that phrase means. I've looked high and low. I've looked everywhere. They all know me from the least to the greatest. That means everyone without exception who's in this new covenant will know Almighty God in an intimate way, a committed way, in a way that touches mind, emotion, and will. And if you're a Christian believer, that means you. Hallelujah. That's for you. That's for you. That's for the least to the greatest. Everyone without exception. And it's important to emphasize this because we live in an age of a wide social and economic division. And one of the ways that manifests itself is through celebrity culture. People who gain fame, even for a moment, are put on a pedestal. And we're all supposed to look up to them and revere them. And the creation of these godlike figures is not new in human history. But technology and globalization have enabled it to develop to a, a, new, a new level and become a booming industry. Where the lives, habits, interests, children, clothes and even the tantrums of celebrities are promoted as issues of interest to the rest of us. This mindset can subtly lead to the view that the rest of us, the shop workers, the homemakers, the technicians, the office workers, the classroom assistants, the drivers, cooks and nurses aren't really that important. Do you ever feel that message coming through? Here are the really important people and we're just, we're kind of supposed to somehow, you know, get our thrills from picking up what they're doing and let some of their gold dust so, uh, celebrity gold does fall on us. We're just a sort of the common people. They're the, they're the kind of really important people. And uh, if we're not careful, we can apply that mindset to church. And we can somehow think, you know, who am I? Who am I? I don't know if you ever feel that way. We can end up writing ourselves off. We're not really the sort of people who can really know God intimately, personally in a way that touches our heart, mind, and emotions in a very close and intimate relationship. I mean, that's for really spiritual people. That's for the great. That's for giants in the faith. And uh, we assume that's the kind of life for the giants in the Bible. Isn't the Bible full of stories of amazing people, after all? Isn't it? Uh, actually, no. The Bible's full of stories of ordinary people. Ordinary people. James, uh, the apostle, wanted people to understand this when he wrote this. The prayer of a righteous person is powerful and effective. Elijah, Elijah! Have you read the story of Elijah? Amazing! Elijah was a person just like us. James really wants people to understand this. He was a person just like us. He prayed earnestly that it would not rain, and it did not rain on the land for three and a half years. Again he prayed, and the heavens gave rain, and the earth produced its crops. And then James goes on and says, you know, pray for one another that you may be healed. So he takes the example of Elijah and doesn't say, what an amazing superstar. You can never be like that. He says, he was just like us. He prayed. You can pray. Amazing. Amazing. That's the Apostle James' perspective. He wants the stories of Elijah 
to be read, not as if they were unrepeatable. On the contrary, he wants us to do what he did. And he wants to bring ordinary people like us into an experience like Elijah had. That's why James wrote that. Do you agree? Elijah knew times of confusion. He knew times of fear. And he experienced times of what we might even today call clinical depression. He was just like you. He was just like you. And yet he prayed. Jeremiah was the same. Alec Motier wrote this about Jeremiah. I love this quote. Jeremiah stands out as a lonely figure, isolated by a message from God which made him increasingly unpopular, branded a traitor for advocating submission to Babylon. He was imprisoned and often in danger of his life, yet this sensitive, unself-confident man never once compromised his message from God. Are you a sensitive person? Do you get easily upset? Do you lack self-confidence? You're just like Jeremiah, just like him, lonely, isolated. Sometimes he had to prophesy, and he was the only prophet saying what he said, and there were lots of other prophets who were contradicting him. How's that for a a job? There were prophets associated around the court of the kings of Israel and Judah, and in Jeremiah's day, they were prophesying against Jeremiah. And Jeremiah alone was speaking his message. Amazing. Amazing. No wonder he felt lacking in self-confidence. He felt isolated. He was sensitive. It got to him sometimes. And you can read there are certain passages in the book which are called like his complaints. And he cries out to God and he says, basically, this is dreadful. Why have you got me doing this? This is awful. And he's kind of pouring out his heart. He's complaining before God. Jeremiah was a sensitive, unself-confident man. And he was just like you. We're just like him. When Moses was told on one occasion that some Israelites were prophesying in the camp without him being present, as if that was a problem, Moses replied, Are you jealous for my sake? I wish that all the Lord's people were prophets and that the Lord would put his spirit on them. See, Moses wanted everyone to experience the life in the spirit. He wanted everyone to be able to prophesy. He didn't think it was just for superstars in the faith. Do you see that? The Apostle Peter picks up this theme when he quotes the prophet Joel on the day of Pentecost. In the last days, God says, I will pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your young men will see visions. Your old men will see dreams. Even on my servants, both men and women, I will pour out my spirit in those days and they will prophesy. Hallelujah. The apostle Paul agrees. He says that the manifestation of the spirit is for everyone without exception. Now to each one, the manifestation of the spirit is given for the common good. When you come together, each of you has a hymn. A word of instruction, a revelation, a tongue, or an interpretation. And later on, he says, you can all prophesy in turn so that everyone may be instructed and encouraged. So we can see from these places and elsewhere in Scripture that the new covenant experience of all knowing God from the least to the greatest is not a promise. It's just to do with our personal relationship with God, but it also has a radical social dimension as well. It's also a shared experience within the fellowship of his church. So it's not just when I became a Christian, or just before I became a Christian, I was given a little green booklet by the navigators. It's called Knowing God Personally. <clears throat> Anyone ever read it? And that was my doorway into faith. I read it. And I read the little diagrams about gulfs between me and God and the bridge and the cross. And, and I prayed the prayer at the end. And that's actually my first step towards saving faith. It was called Knowing God Personally. 
But in those days, knowing God personally was understood as a very, a very personal matter. You knew God personally through Bible reading and prayer. And this, this Christian also knew God personally through Bible reading and prayer. And this Christian also knew God personally. So lots of people who knew God personally. But actually, the new covenant promise is not just for individual personal relationships with God, but it's, it's a shared experience that we all participate in together. The manifestation of the Spirit is given for the common good, Paul says. Do you see that? So it's a shared, it's a public, and it's a social experience that defines and shapes not only our personal lives, but also our coming together as fellow believers. So, it's legitimate to ask how this way of life can be expressed. How do we get to know God? Obviously, it's through Christ. It's by the working of his Spirit. But are there some practical, specific things as well that we can do? Now, we don't do this very often on a Sunday morning, but we'll do it anyway. Here's what I'd like you to do. Not that. How many? I'd like you to get into groups of about hmm, four or five would be good. We're going to do a little bit of work together. What? What? Oh, no, I came to church. I didn't come to do anything. Okay, so groups... <laughs> What we need, we need 10 groups. 10 groups. It's probably about five or six per group, something like that, maybe. Could you do that right now, please? You may need to turn your chairs around. So what I'd like to happen is, oh yeah, that would be great, yeah. Um, okay, so what I'd like to happen, before you give them out, what I'd like to happen is, could one representative from each group put your hand in the air? Doesn't, you're not going to be called on to do anything, I just want to know how many groups there are. So if we could just put a hand in the air, I want to count hands. One, two, right up please. One, two, three, four, five, six, third, uh, seven, eight, nine, ten, perfect, perfect. Uh, Karen is going to go around and distribute a small piece of paper, and on the piece of paper, it's going to be a Bible verse, and it's going to be a statement. And the statement is an example of some of the specific ways that people in the New Testament developed and experienced the knowledge of God. What I want you to do in your group, please, is to turn to that passage in the Bible, read it together, and I want you to ask yourself three questions. The first is, what does the passage say? The second is, what does it mean? And the third is, what do I think about it? What does the passage say? What does it mean? What do I think about it? And the passage will focus on one specific way in which people in the New Testament discovered a relationship with God, how it worked out in practical ways. Okay. What does the passage mean? Uh, What does it say? What does it mean? What do I think about it? I'd like you to take 10 minutes, please, in your groups to answer those three questions. Could you start doing that now, please? Okay, so what I'd like you to do, just to draw your conversations together for a minute. And uh, just stay where you are in your your groups. And uh, what I'd like to happen is I'd like someone from the group just to give us a one-minute report back on what you've learned. Just anything. Just could be your own personal impression. 
It could be a well-thought-through summary. I just want to hear something. So first of all, I want you to tell us what was the verse and what were you... What was the sort of the subject area that you were looking at? And then just, someone to, just tell us your impressions of your discussion. Give us a flavor of how you got on. And uh, Karen, would you mind going around and um, distributing the microphone to people so we can all do it one at a time? I'd like, I'd like you to go first, please. So can you tell us um, what you were studying? And a one-minute impression. You'll, you'll need to stand, I think. Okay, so let's the rest of us here then, please. So if you take the microphone around the different groups, yeah. It's on. Okay, so we um, had a passage from John chapter 12, um, and it was an occasion where there was, an, uh, in the presence of Jesus and disciples and possibly some other people, the audible voice of God was heard by everybody present. Some people said it sounded like thunder. Some people said it sounded like the voice of an angel. Um, so, yeah, so the topic was, can we, is it possible for everybody to hear the audible voice of God? So I think the passage um, showed us that it is, that it happens. Um, so, um, yeah, does this mean that it can happen to us today? So I think, I think there are other occasions in scripture where this happens. So we can conclude if it's in the Bible that, that any of us could hear the audible voice of God. And we said, maybe that's an external voice or maybe it may be internal, but it would probably be a clear sense of words spoken rather than sort of a sense of perception or a feeling, maybe a, a clear sense of words spoken that are clearly understood. Um, so I think... Yeah, we're all probably slightly challenged by that. Maybe some of us have experienced it, some of us haven't, but we can all believe that it's possible. Uh, We were reading from Colossians um, and chapter 9, and it's it's Paul starting off his letter to the church in Colossians, and he he basically says that since he heard about their faith, he hasn't stopped praying for them, uh, and the particular verse is that they will be filled with the knowledge of his will uh, in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. Um, and I think our summary was that it, see, it seems like Paul is keen that after people have heard the truth about what God has done for them, that rather than just kind of trying their best to live properly and to, to respond to that, that Paul is convinced that there's something available from God in the spirit, that there's a wisdom and there's an understanding um, that that helps people to respond to the truth that they've heard. Um, that helps people to live properly, helps people to, Paul goes on to talk about persevering um, and and having joy and basically living in, 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 in response to truth. Um, so yeah, that again, that was quite a challenge to us in thinking about whether that's something we really seek after or whether we're often trying to just live the best we can in, in, uh, in our own strength. Oh, my Bible's flipped over. Right. Yep, sure. <laughs> I've just lost it. Right, here we go. Um, we had a passage from Ephesians 3, verses 14 to 19, which is all one sentence and quite convoluted. Um, but it seems to be Paul is bowing his knees before the Father and asking that God would grant the Ephesians to be strengthened through, uh, with power through the Spirit inside so that Christ may dwell in their hearts so that they would understand all together, so it's all together with all the saints, so the corporate element comes through there, love, Christ's love, and that they'd be filled with all the fullness of God. So it's that promise that Jeremiah was talking about. And I just, I think what struck us was that, that Paul was on his knees asking God for this. So surely we should be also doing the same thing together, 
seeking God to be filled with his fullness, to have the Holy Spirit in our hearts, putting Christ in our hearts. We also had uh, Ephesians 3, but verses 2 to 6. And this is where Paul is talking to the Ephesians and encouraging them to hear, to read, and to understand what he's telling them. And basically his message is that it's a great mystery, but God has included the Gentiles as well as the Jews in the gospel, and we're all included. So everyone's included. This comes through a revelation to the church, um, and it's always has been God's intention to reach both the, the Jews and the Gentiles. And uh, the encouragement there for us to understand and listen to what the apostles and the prophets are saying, uh, reading our Bibles, obviously, but also we think it's applicable to teaching within the church now. We need to hear what is being said. Uh, our passage was Acts 8. Um, it's the story of uh, Philip going to see the Ethiopian eunuch. Um, starts off with a direction from an angel to, to Philip to, to go south. And then he got a second direction from the spirit to go and stand by and stay by a, the chariot. And then it was over to Philip because then he heard um, the Ethiopian reading from the scriptures and then they got into conversation. It, 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 the guy had an interest but not an understanding in what he was reading and Philip kind of helped him understand what was what he was reading about and then he brought him to faith and then he got baptized um so great great story about God's taking the initiative and you know setting this story off and then Philip picking up from there having had the direction from God but then seeing somebody in need seeing somebody with interest but but not understanding and then making that making that connection for him so lots of stuff for us to learn but I, i guess we were concentrating on being open to hearing from god but then being open to not having to have everything explained to us by god but then being able to with god pushing us in the right direction us being able to take it from there um so yeah, that was basically a summary of what we've... We had um, uh, Acts 10, sorry, Acts 9, verses uh, 10 to 12, which is um, the account of when um, uh, Ananias has a vision from the Lord and he is told to go to, um, to a particular place to meet with Paul and to lay his hands on him um, and so that he may see again. So... Um, uh, we looked at this. I, I, we found it difficult to kind of put it all into exact the sort of same mean thing. We were kind of just sort of talking around it. But um, so there were various things where the where uh, we discussed well, what's a what, what what is a vision? How, how does it how does it differentiate from a dream? Um, we thought it was probably a waking experience rather than a sleeping one. Um, uh, and um, we also uh, talked about. Um, the fact that God was actually kind of moving in, 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 you know, in one person and then also moving in somewhere else and kind of bringing things together um, with, with Ananias and Saul. And the fact that actually it's, Ananias kind of had a bit of a sort of a Samuel experience where he's, um, he's kind of saying, Lord, he, you know, here I am. Um, and, um, and he's given a very specific um, uh, instruction to go to a particular street. Um, and, and in fact, so in his vision, he's actually 
in the vision, it tells him that, that, that Saul's having a vision. So it's kind of, you know, it's a very, very specific things going on. Um, so anyone else, uh, anything else that came out? Sorry. Yes, yes, of course, yes, yeah. Yes, so, so the fact that, that, uh, that Ananias is a believer in, in Damascus, and obviously he, his, his, his reaction to, to, um, to, 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 to this initially what might not necessarily have been a positive one because he knew who Saul was and, and all the things that Saul had been doing. Um, and, uh, and also that but actually God was actually doing in this and actually bringing, bringing um, you know, sort of growing his church and actually, you know, a kind of the, the new, kind of new, new kind of era of, of the new covenant and actually uh, and the acceptance of Saul into, into his people. So I'm rambling now, but... Um, Okay, so I, oh, that's loud. Uh, I have 1 Corinthians uh, 12, verses 7 to 11. Uh, and this was really talking about the, uh, the gifts of the Spirit that, the, uh, that God provides his church. And it starts off um, the, the verses really saying that these are for the common good. So they're each given individually by the uh, one Spirit, but they're meant for each believer together to have uh, an experience together so you almost get a picture of um, God giving it to us each individually and you won't really get the full benefit of this new covenant relationship unless you've got all of them acting together um, but each individually and it also said that um, we've all got access to these so every one of us so it wasn't limited to the few it was every one of us yeah so we had the uh the story of the, the paralytic guy who got lowered through the roof. You know the one? Yeah, so so, <laughs> so that's the passage we had. And uh, I suppose there are two things that came out of it. Andy picked up the fact that, you know, they, the, the, it begins with, you know, they, the power of Jesus was healing and so on. And so they saw that, but they didn't just see it. They actually did something in response. So they acted on what they saw rather than just observed and thought, oh, that's interesting. Yeah, so that was the first thing. And then the second thing, I suppose, that we identified as we looked at it, it was a group thing that they did. Do you know what I mean? It was a group of them together, exercising faith together. It wasn't an individualistic exercise that they all did their own little thing, but actually together they did something in faith, a bit like I was talking about in terms of it's a collective thing as well as an individual thing. So we were also in Acts where um, Peter has this vision. He's praying and he has this vision about these unclean meats. And he says, well, Lord, I never ate anything like that. And then, um, and then immediately after that, some people come to him who have been sent by Cornelius. And so our conclusion was, you know, God was preparing him to do things that he wouldn't naturally do. And having the vision before these people coming to see him was you know, a way of God reassuring him, it's okay to go to the Gentiles and to preach with them. And so then we spoke about our personal experience of God asking us to do things which sometimes, which we normally naturally wouldn't be inclined to do. Um, and also that we should be open. For example, in our meetings, if somebody comes and tells maybe a prophecy or a vision that sounds a bit strange, and not quite sure about that, but still we should be open to that because that's how God operates. Am I on? Okay, good. I hope that was uh, useful for you. We're going to move into a time of worship where we can really draw near to God, sense his presence, and hopefully put into practice some of the things we've been hearing. When we read the Bible, especially the New Testament, we see many ways that the knowledge of God was experienced by ordinary Christian believers. 
They heard God speak to them through the scriptures. That's obviously vital. They fellowshiped with God in prayer. They celebrated in praise and in worship. They recognized the manifest presence of God when they met together. They received visions. They heard and they saw angels. They received dreams from God. Some heard the audible voice of God. They were filled with the spirit of wisdom. They exercised gifts given by the Holy Spirit. They responded to inner promptings in their hearts and minds and many, many other ways as well. It's not just about reading the Bible. In the Bible, we read of many ways that God enables us to experience him, to know him, to have fellowship with him. And we have an opportunity to continue to do that today. So we're going to worship God and uh, let's just draw near to him. Let's welcome his Holy Spirit. And I'm sure in, 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 in due course, we'll begin to see some of the uh, things that we've been talking about begin to be manifest. But let's first of all draw near in worship.